Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today, my guest is Mary Catherine Hamm, formerly of CNN and Fox News, and now host of the Getting Hammered podcast. This is episode 42. From Jeffrey Tubin and Jeff Zucker, to Elon Musk and Twitter, to raising kids and overcoming loss, we begin with the news that Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon are out of jobs at Fox and CNN. So really looking forward to, to having this conversation. I um, wanted to for a while, big fan of yours. And uh, I wanted to start, obviously, with the state of the media business and some of the specific places that you've uh, you've been. Uh, but I think yeah. we actually have to start, you know, we're recording this on Monday, um, with the breaking news that's happening uh, in two of your former homes at yes. Fox News. Tucker Carlson is out, uh, shockingly. And at CNN, Don Lemon has been fired. Maybe a little less shockingly, although a little shocked with the way it went out with him tweeting in this blaze of glory or, or yes. at least trying to. So uh, I know this has just happened um, over you know only a few, a few hours ago. But as you look at it, these specific stories are really kind of what it says about the more traditional media business in general. What do you think? Yeah, well, with Don Lemon, I feel like I followed that one a little bit more closely. But, um, you know, it, it struck me that that variety story, and I, t- I think I talked about it on my pa- podcast as well, is that was this placed as prep for uh, laying yeah. the groundwork for getting rid of Don Lemon? And it turns out that that was indeed the case. And now uh, Don Lemon has tweeted, OK, well, they didn't they didn't talk to me about this, which that was that was similar to some of the treatment that I got uh, at CNN but then CNN said, oh, no, no, his account is a lie. So CNN PR is in a war with him right now. So it's, you know, just that's probably not going as smoothly as hoped. Uh, but look, it looked like there was plenty of reason uh, to have issues with Don Lemon. And I thought the pairing in the morning show was odd uh, yeah. with especially, well, knowing what I know now, I didn't know all that stuff that was in the Variety uh, article. But after reading that, and certainly higher ups knew that, why are we putting him with two women in the morning? Uh, it didn't seem destined to succeed. And if he had pulled that in her prime stuff while I was on set, it would have been, I would have been real mad, real mad. Yeah. I, 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 I know the, the, that and there's been several Don Lemon stories um, yeah. based on on-air interactions he's had with um, his co-hosts and, and guests and whatnot. But that one, has really seemed to to stick this 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 attempt to slam Nikki Haley, but really in the way smearing all women, uh, everyone right. really. I think, about... I think I just I would have been like, let's drill down on that, Don. <laughs> I would like to know, like, do you mean like reproductive prime or her attractiveness prime physically? What what exactly what are we getting at? And how is that different from your prime? And why does it matter when she's running for president? I would like to know all about that, Don. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, let's right. Let's get some more info on it. Yeah, uh, that one definitely was. It seemed like it was going to be becoming uh, at some point. Even though we got you know this new show and uh, in the morning, not prime time. You know, he's it was slowly getting moved out of there. New administration. I definitely want to talk about your experience there in both the old and the new, um, and being quiet, suspended as as you wrote about last year. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, like I said, you know, we've got Tucker as well uh, at Fox, right. which which again, I know we don't don't know the details of that, um, how it all came to be. Um, but it is it does show this real massive 
change happening in the in the in the media landscape. I mean, initially, you know, I was thinking of it in terms of BuzzFeed News has just completely mm-hmm. shut down, and there's rumblings that Vice could be headed that way. It's it does feel like as we sit in 2023, this real inflection point in the media. Things are changing. There's going to be winners and losers. Things are shaking out. And and now what? What comes next? Well, yeah. And I, I think what comes next is what's interesting to me, partly about the Tucker story, because I think you've seen... So Glenn Beck left Fox News when he was similarly a sort of a behemoth of the ratings, right? right. Um, and he did the blaze. And there was this sort of alternative place for folks to go. Um O'Reilly was then the behemoth, the behemoth, and he is now running a podcast, right? But uh, they're not. I would not say that they have the stature that they had while they were at Fox, right? right? I think Tucker leaving at this time as the ratings behemoth, there's there is a clearer model for creating something outside uh, the Fox News or the CNN or the MSNBC silos that can be just as effective and uh, powerful and give you sort of the same stature. I think uh, one Megyn Kelly, who you may be familiar with, uh, is a model for that and uh, has been extremely successful at just staying in the conversation and being extremely relevant. And I don't think the path was as clear for a Beck, for instance, who did really cool stuff at The Blaze, but the time I think is riper for that now. It's going to be interesting. Or maybe he just wants to hang out in his swimming pool of money. I don't know. Yeah, I, uh, something tells me I don't think he does. I feel I like he kept adding jobs at Fox, you know, with the documentaries and with yeah. and with the long form interviews. Um, yeah, well, very curious to see. Well, um, before we get too far in depth into into some things, and I do want to talk about that column that you wrote about your time at CNN, um, but keep us updated on where things are now there, because I know that you had, when you wrote that at the time, this was October of 2022, um, part of that um, was that, you were thinking of it now, this new regime has taken over, getting back on the air there, it's clean slate, if you will, you know, and now no longer at CNN. Yeah. So my, my contract was up in March, yeah. so I'm no longer there. You know, in the end, it wasn't a match. It wasn't, it wasn't a match, Steve. And, <laughs> uh, you know, look, I, during that whole process, um, I was, I'll tell the brief story. I was suspended without my knowledge under the Zucker regime for having an argument with uh, Andrew Krasinski, a colleague on Twitter about a news story that CNN had covered and just sort of media bias in general, during which I mentioned Jeffrey Tubin's uh, foibles. And that was considered problematic. It seems to me that his foibles were more problematic than me mentioning them, but it got me uh, sort of persona non grata at the network. Uh, But I was never told. So I was off air for seven, eight months, uh, not knowing why. And I kept sort of approaching people, trying to figure it out. Couldn't figure it out. And I, I, at the time when they finally told me, um, it was under the new leadership. And I thought, okay, well, maybe, maybe we can just, they're here to make this right. But it was kind of like, okay, so this is what happened. Um, and I said, well, why didn't you talk to me? And they said, well, because you had just had a baby which is not the answer you want to hear. No. And uh, that's that's not the thing to say. And um, and it just was like, are you excited to come back? And I was like, no, I'm really mad. I'm very mad. So how are we going to make this right? And there didn't seem to be any desire to make it right. So, so now I'm gone. So that was the end of it. Yeah, you you wrote in this, in this piece, which I, I would suggest everybody read, um, about being quiet, suspended in this age of quiet quitting, 
that uh, you were off the air for seven months. Tubin was off the air for eight months. The difference between the punishment for jacking off at work versus commenting on the inadvisability of jacking off at work. Um, and I also wanted to, you know, I, I really stuck out to me was towards the end, you're talking about this idea that by avoiding airing dirty laundry um, and not going public before this, you know, that's a way of protecting those who, in your, as you write, didn't deserve it and caused the perpetuation of workplace bullshit to which you do not want to be a party. Um, and, and, you know, it really did stick with me because I think that there's different paths that people take um, when when things like this happens. And, you know, it, it's it, like media is such a, so such a unique business. It's such a weird one where a lot of the same things that happen in the media world happen. But for the most part, it happens behind closed doors. These are not public figures. I mean, you could be a pretty low level person at a media organization like The New York Times or CNN right. and have a decent sized Twitter following and people that know you and you're, you you feel like you're kind of part of, you're, you're a player in this, in this public conversation that's happening. And you actually are in a lot of ways. And so I guess, you know, as you look at it um, and, and, you know, that part in particular, kind of your presence at these media organizations, like how, what, what kind of lessons do you think there are about things in the future, what you would do differently, do the same and kind of, you know, your, your postmortem on, on all that. I mean, I think I think what I what I went to CNN to do was really worthwhile, which is, look, I know that most people on set don't agree with me. I know that most of the audience doesn't agree with me. Right. But if I and I do this, I go to college campuses all the time for the same reason. If I can make people who do not agree with me go, huh, I'd never thought about it like that before. Then we are getting closer to repairing some of the really real problems in this country. Um, And if I can be that person who can build those bridges, then I like to do that. Now, the appetite for having someone like me do that, uh, you know, changes over time. And it changed at CNN, right? There there was a time when I had a great time there and I could always dust it up with people and and have those conversations. And then it it became less and less important. And I knew what I could do to keep the spot and to move up. Like I could just say the things, right. (laughs) I'm not going to do that. First of all, I'm not bad. I'm not good at being anything other than myself. I'm terrible (laughs) at it. Um, so I knew that I would crash and burn attempting something like that. It's not what I want to do. And what's the point of that, right? I want to have principles and I want to speak about them. Right. Um, but I did think that like, didn't, what did we learn from me too? If it wasn't, don't keep your mouth totally shut about your colleague, jacking off at work. Like I, that seemed like very obviously commentable to me. And as I wrote in the piece, I was like, how dare they call me in to speak about every errant penis in the media industry for three years. And then there's one that's off limits. No, I reject this. And that's what I told them. I was like, I reject that. I reject (laughs) that. That's the standard. Um, because there's a certain amount of, there's a certain amount of, uh, humiliation, not, not as strong as humiliation, but embarrassment, uh, in having to talk about these things on air. I didn't do anything wrong. Right. And yet over and over and over again, I have to talk about them. Right. So it's a strange professional dance. Um, and so in the end I was like, you know, I gotta be me. I gotta right. say things. I gotta open my big mouth. And I did. <laughs> How did Trump change the cable news landscape and the evolution of the left from the time Mary Catherine and Guy Benson wrote their book, End of Discussion. I, I was uh, 
was looking back at some of the, the comments that you've made when you were, you know, an, like an exceeding contributor in the same way. Um, yeah. There was a story about um, Joe Rogan and that whole experience with the Rogan, Sanjay Gupta, Ivermectin situation that happened. Yeah. And it's just like such a great example. I mean, you sort of called, not called out CNN because you were really just saying, I'm commenting on this story that's in the news. Right. Um, you know, th- th- this, this essentially overreach, I would say, by CNN in in having to slam Joe Rogan for, it's not just that he's taking something that is not proven to help COVID. No, no, this is a horse to warmer and all that, you know, we, right. we know that, that also. And, and I, and I wonder, like, it, it, I think about that because I was, you know, at CNN for in 2013, um, when Jeff Zucker was there, uh, I left shortly after that, but I did work with him closely. And it's, it's, I wonder what your experience with Jeff was, because it's kind of this paradox with him. Like in some ways, people loved working for him because yes. there was this real sense of like, we're all in this together. It's this fight. And but that was also a pre-Trump era. It was a very different experience, I would imagine, yeah. than than once that came in. And 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 the legacy of that is is I, I wonder kind of where that leaves CNN, what they're still trying to dig out now a year later since he's been gone. But you know, what your experience was, you know, in that before the quiet suspension happened. Yeah. So in the early years, like in, in, I went over there in 2016 right? and I felt like, okay, first of all, we, the, the 2016 reaction to Trump was very different than the post-election reaction to Trump. Right. So yes. 2016, it was like live shots of Trump, no matter what he's saying. Right. <laughs> um, but I felt yeah. like in editorial meetings, when I was there for big events, um, there was a real conscious effort to message to people. Uh, we are not disrespecting folks who think this person is viable where like they're really from Zucker himself that those yeah. were messages that came out in those meetings so i would say the turn post election was disappointing for me cuz i felt like even if i'm very outnumbered um at least we were attempting to tell the story without denigrating a bunch of people right. and then it did not feel like that and then the the russia stuff where i just sat around for several years with this look on my face and was like, guys, I don't think this is what you think it is. And then yeah. in the end it was not, but there was, this is, this is to me is a real breaking point in media trustworthiness um, yeah. is no one took any punishment for that. There was no fallout. Um, in fact, people are rewarded for having reported wrong things about that story because it fit what everyone wanted, which was everyone wanted to unprecedent the president. And I kept saying, Look, you can't unpresident the president. You should probably just run against him and try to win, which is eventually what happened. Yeah. Um, so I just it was discouraging that there was no reward for being right and there was no punishment for being wrong, basically ever. Yeah. Yeah. No, especially not in the context of that story. And that in story in particular, yes. Yeah. And it and it also gets to this idea of like, wouldn't it be interesting? I mean, if someone wants to watch like good TV, like wouldn't it be beneficial to an audience to get points of view out there that are not just, you know, there's a Russia story. It's good for Trump. You know, this is going to be the end of Trump. Yeah. And then here's, here's some like big MAGA fan who's going to tell it like even, even having that debate is less right. interesting than someone who has a nuanced and rational point of view like yourself who can just be like, like almost the meta, is this a good, you know, is this a story we should be covering spending a lot of time? And you would think that that would be of interest, but I guess that's not really like the business model of. Well, yeah. And it's, and it's like a, it's an affront to those who are deciding what story, you know, so it's yeah. sort of stepping on toes. I get that. I'm the skunk at the garden party. I always was. Um, but there were moments when I was like, I think there was, there was one moment where I was on air and we were talking about, um, 
uh, Trump one year didn't make the top rich people list in Fortune or where, wherever they do that list. And it was maybe the first time he hadn't made it. Okay. And it was so that was a story. OK. And then we had a reporter who was reporting on the stats of this and why he wasn't on the list. But then there was a panel about like, what might Donald Trump feel about that? And I'm like, well, this is literally news that has not happened. So we should maybe wait till Donald Trump set. He's going to say something. Right. Maybe we should wait till he says something and then talk about it. <laughs> Uh, it's, like, uh, yeah, the 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 pick a side on the hypothetical of. Yeah, like, I'm like I don't um, feel comfortable doing that. Sorry, this is not good. Uh, okay, well let me ask you this because now let's go back before CNN. Um, yeah. I believe I've got the timing right. You uh, wrote a book with Guy Benson. Um, yes. This was in June of 2015, uh, which. I mean, the way this is all developed, it's kind of funny. Like this, this book could be written, you know, obviously today, but even it has stood the test of time. Yeah. The the title for, for those who want to find it is end of discussion, how the left's outrage industry shuts down debate, manipulates voters and makes America less free and fun. Uh, and yeah, I mean, a very prescient, uh, let's say in, in how the things have developed there, uh, as you look at that and, and kind of where things continued, um, now we're looking at, you know, from, from the left and, and w- w- what do you like, did you anticipate that it would be as far down this, this, you know, <laughs> this hole as, I don't, as it I has don't think been? I did. I, look, I wasn't optimistic. I think in the book, uh, we actually say like, this is a giant ship that must turn. So it would turn really slowly, even yeah. in a best case scenario, Um, I try to do my little part by going to college campuses and showing them that conservatives are not monsters. Uh, You know, I try to do my little part by being at CNN and saying that there's a different way to think about things. Uh, But no, you know, I think the issue is that if you're a person who loves free speech, um, that sometimes, and this is, I think, many on the right feel that like, okay, well, the left is amplified in their sort of cancel culture tendencies in every major institution. So if I'm a person of principles, what I'm basically doing is unilaterally disarming against this force, which wants to shut me up. Right. Um, And so it's a very I get that it's a hard line to walk. I believe so strongly that free speech and open debate is so good for all of us uh, that I have to keep standing for that and not just trying to shut up my opponents. Although sometimes it is tempting, um, but I just think we've we're in this ratchet or sort of whirlpool where it's getting faster and faster and faster, and the incentives are all almost all to shut people up instead and shut people down instead of engaging with them. Yeah, I it's uh, I agree with you, and I also think though that as the the left has ratcheted up, I I also see this on the right in the sense of like what Ron DeSantis you can say did a lot of great things I think for Florida and COVID and other, but the the kind of appeal of Ron DeSantis, which I don't know if that will end up helping him in the presidency or not, but the appeal of him on the right in a lot of cases is this like fight cancel culture with cancel culture, you know, and right. I think that um, I like. Do you think that instinct on the right is something that is worth fighting against or is the left's tactics now rising to the level of, of we need to do this? It depends on the issue for me sometimes, because sometimes the labeling something cancel culture is just an attempt to knock out a perfectly reasonable policy. For instance, on a lot of these quote unquote banned books issues, it's just an age restriction. 
Okay. It's, we're not banning the book. It is perfectly reasonable for parents to go, Hey, like maybe my middle schooler shouldn't be doing this one with the explicit sexual content. Right. right. So if you call that book banning, then that becomes a perfectly formerly reasonable policy position and turns it into fascism. Right. right. So that is a form of cancel culture in, in and of itself. And so there are times when it, when I feel like the left is just saying, haha, you're canceling people. And I'm like, or am I saying 12 year olds maybe shouldn't have explicit sexual material in a middle school library? Like, right. I feel like that's okay. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, as close to a free speech absolutist as you're going to get for adults. I do think there are different rules and policies for children. And I feel like that is part of the conversation They're they're trying to force us to say, no, we're absolutists for everyone all the time. Coming up, Elon Musk and Twitter, plus having kids and overcoming loss and the state of college football. That's next. But first, I've enjoyed being on Substack for a few months, and so far I find it to be a great experience. I hope you do too. One of the things I love about the platform is it houses all sorts of content, from the far right to the far left, to the totally random, apolitical, weird stuff to everything in between. That's great. The censorship is minimal to non-existent, and that is wonderful. In an interview with The Verge, Substack CEO Chris Best was pressed by Verge editor Nalay Patel on a specific instance of content moderation, and the exchange was shared widely. We should not allow as many brown people in the country. Do you allow that on Substack? Would you allow that on Substack notes? Asked Patel. Best didn't really answer, so Patel kept trying and raising the emotional stakes in an obviously non-journalistic way. I'm a brown person. Do you think people on Substack should say I should get kicked out of the country? This continued back and forth with Best refusing to answer. It's important to note Patel later had to add an update, admitting his example actually was not a violation of the content guidelines, which read, Substack cannot be used to publish content or fund initiatives that incite violence based on protected classes. Offending behavior, including credible threats of physical harm to people based on their race, ethnicity, national origin, religion, sex, gender identity, sexual orientation, age, disability, or medical condition. Now, I first noticed it through a tweet from a journalist who was praising Patel over pressing best about what should and shouldn't be allowed on Substack. Others I saw share it agreed. They were happy to see someone speaking out for what obviously shouldn't be allowed on a platform. This is disturbing. Activists not understanding freedom of speech or the free flow of ideas is one thing, but these are journalists serving in their new role of anti-speech activists, arguing for more censorship and suppression. Racist ideas are bad ideas. I'm on board with that. But the idea that we should ban ideas that are bad is so absurd and counterproductive, and yet it is becoming the norm among the Acela media elite. Best should say proudly that some racist asshole can write, we should not allow as many brown people in the country on Substack. That person can get called out and ostracized. The system can and very likely will work. That's called America. The members of the media who have abandoned their principles should not be placated. You can say racist things on Substack. You can say dumb, incorrect things too. And in all these cases, you will not be rewarded. This is a feature, not a bug. Trust the process. Americans are much smarter than the corporate media gives them credit for. More with Mary Catherine coming up, but I want to tell you that the full Fourth Watch podcast is available exclusively to paid subscribers on Substack. Yes, Fourth Watch has gone to Substack in 2023. Paid subscribers get a whole bunch of extra content from original deep dive columns called Rabbit Hole to the full podcasts each episode. 
Check it out for just five bucks a month or $50 a year at fourthwatch.media. And now back to my conversation with Mary Catherine Hamm. Uh, how much of this do you think is is social media's fault? Because, you know, I, obviously social media was big in 2015 when you wrote your book, but Twitter in particular has become this, this, especially I would say since Elon took over and, you know, we're currently having this big uproar over the blue checks and who keeps their blue check and, <laughs> and, uh, and what does its status symbol mean? If you it used to be, uh, you needed the blue check as a status symbol. Now you need to make sure you don't have one right, right. as a status symbol. Paying for it. Right, yeah. right. So it's like this whole, it's a lot of time and energy and thought that goes into the ins and outs of Twitter. It seems with very small number of people having lots and lots of thoughts when it compared to the rest of the country, but so many, so how much, many <laughs> yes. What, what do you think Twitter's role in all this is? I'm so torn on Twitter because there can be so many wonderful things about new technology and, and Twitter's now not that new, but you know what I'm saying about yeah. the, the media landscape and what it allows people to do. So for instance, a wonderful thing about Twitter uh, is that you can find uh, primary video and primary documents that were not as readily available 20 years ago, you'd have to go to a courthouse to dig something up. But now these primary or or you would only hear from the reporter sort of a filtered version of what this was, right? Now we have access to a ton of that. But sometimes when you have access to too much material, uh, your brain needs to go on a diet because <laughs> you're just consuming all the bad stuff and the sugar and the like dopamine hits and you're not actually thinking anymore. Uh, and again, I think in media, in the social media world, uh, and these things, of course, are linked. The incentives are bad. The incentives are bad. I know how I could be more famous and more paid, right? I know right. exactly how to do it. Um, and it is a, it's not something I want to do, but I understand why louder and sometimes wronger and meaner <laughs> is what people do because you're going to get tons of traffic, right? Um, some of them do it earnestly. They're earnestly meaner and louder. I get it. Um, but yeah, the incentives are bad on, on so much social media. And it's actually, you know, this is data. It's not a, it's not a, just a supposition. Right. I, how much of this do you think is conscious versus subconscious on the part of some of these people? Because, you know, like, you know, being louder and meaner gets you more famous. Like, you know, how much of it is, is these people have just completely lost perspective like if you had something yeah. happen in your IRL life or you had more of an IRL life, you right. would be able to see that this is not, you know, Twitter is not real life versus consciously, I'm going to perform this way in order to reap the benefits of it. Yeah. I mean, I think some of it, look, some of it is emotion over very real issues. We are facing some very real and scary things in our in our country and in our debates. And sometimes I think, and I've stood accused uh, of, I might be a little too chill sometimes because I'm always trying to regulate like, okay, how much of an emergency is this? That's funny. But then, I'm the same way. The reason for that is because actually this comes from being on air with Bill O'Reilly. If you yell at Bill O'Reilly every week, he's not going to listen to you. But if you do it once every three months, all of a sudden he's like, <laughs> so, so it makes, it makes when you really believe in something actually matter to people. Uh, and so I always want to preserve that. Um, but it's difficult to find the calibration. And I do think when you get down Twitter, like I don't spend a ton of time on Twitter. Um, I will go and tweet every now and then I'll have a conversation with a friend or two. Uh, but I don't make it sort of part of my daily life. Uh, You're not just scrolling think, constantly. Yeah. yeah. And I think I, I do lose perspective. And I think, uh, in, in my life, you know, I had like a 
very public personal tragedy when my my late husband died in 2015. And so that gave me just a just a lifetime's helping of perspective uh, on that occasion, which I think has has served me well since then, because I spend a lot of time thinking, okay, well, I want to fight for my kids in the arena of ideas, but I also want to be a good person to be with my kids. And sometimes fighting in the arena of ideas makes you not so fit for hanging out with your kids. Right. So I have to, I have to walk those lines um, because it can, you know, just scientifically your, your cortisol is going to go up. You're going to feel worse um, unless you're really good at, at taming yourself in those places. Yeah, no, I, and I want to ask you about kids also, um, because I, I do think that, um, kids have a major role in, in a positive way in a lot of people's lives. Um, but let me ask you just all, real quick, cause you mentioned Jake and another thing that I think is a big problem with in general with social media and also with our culture today is that you see more and more where people are really averse, particularly people who have gone very, very strongly into the Trump versus anti-Trump world of not wanting to associate with anyone who has any sort of points of view that that differ from them. And so your, your late husband was an advisor to uh, President Obama. And though obviously, I don't know exactly, you know, all the points of view, but just what do you think the value of you, just that specific aspect of, of that does for people and, and for you in particular? Yeah. I mean, I think, look, it, it can be tough because I, I am, I grew up in a liberal town, so I'm very used to being the weirdo ideologically. And I think that, um, as I always tell college students, like be the weirdo in the room, people need weirdos in the room. They need their ideas tested. Like it's a, it's a real thing. If you're not engaging with anyone as a human (laughs) who disagrees with you, uh, then you're not having your ideas tested. And a lot of people don't want them tested because it's uncomfortable, right? But it makes you better at thinking if you have them, if you have someone around sort of checking you. Um, and so you don't have to subject yourself to haters or anything like that, but I do think, uh, you know, when you meet up with somebody who you have a sports team in common, maybe talk about that for a while. You don't need to talk about politics all the time. We all have different interests. Uh, and we used to like, you know, our tribes intersect, maybe you're liberal and conservative, but you're both bills fans. Like, you know, we can, we can find common ground guys. Um, and I think it, social media makes it, does feel like it makes it harder because it feels like everything is like so politics forward. Now, not on every part of social media, but for our part of social media, um, people live full lives outside of that and should, and those things are where we can connect. And then you start thinking, Oh, maybe my fellow Americans are just like fellow Americans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some exactly. of them are jerks, though. That's true too. <laughs> well, right, right. You will find that. But I, 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 uh, I just got back from a camp out with my son, uh, and all the dads. Um, and, uh, it's remarkable. I mean, I, I, I'm not like a big social person in general. Yeah. So I, I was a lot of talking about to da- dads about dad stuff um, in right. ways that I'm not used to. But um, <laughs> but it also, like, as I was reflecting on this long weekend, did not talk about politics or, you know, the media, honestly, at right. all. I mean, it was a lot of dad stuff, a lot of kids, you know, at school and, oh, what is it, this teacher? You know, it's like a little gossipy stuff also. But, right. um, but it, you know, it, it does change your perspective a lot in a lot of ways. So I wonder like what, what did having kids and continuing to have, you know, have, have kids have that as part of your life. What does that mean in terms of, you know, how did that change you and and kind of the whole full picture of, of who you are? Yeah, I think it, um, on what it, it did, it made me like simultaneously tougher and more tender. I think like, it depends on like, I can, you know, I've given birth to four kids. I can do a lot of stuff. I know that now, 
Um, <laughs> it's like harder than a marathon. So I, I know that part. And also like, you know, because I lost Jake, there are times in life that you look at every, every time you have a kid, you're putting your heart out there in the universe again. Right. And I worry about the world that they will grow, grow up in. And I think it's perfectly reasonable to worry about that. Um, and I think this is where one of the interesting intersections that I've seen uh, over the past couple of years politically is a bunch of liberal and conservative moms, frankly, getting together about school openings because yeah. the stakes were our kids are being hurt. They're being actively hurt. And a lot of moms who get a lot of grief from the Randy Weingartens of the world and called like brunch moms who just want their babysitters back were taking huge amounts of time to make their voices heard at these very local meetings. They were being called all sorts of names by the people who were supposed to be their public servants. Um, and their actual like ideal ideologies were not really at issue. Like they were, I'm in Northern Virginia. Most of these moms don't agree with me, but we agreed on opening schools. Um, and so like, to me, that was sort of a powerful indicator of what fighting for your kids can do. And by the way, the election of Glenn Youngkin, Republican governor of Virginia, was because they shut down schools here for more than a year in Northern Virginia, and he flipped enough votes by not being a looking crazy Republican. <laughs> and and Terry McAuliffe, in his great wisdom, had Randy Weingarten come stump for him days before the election uh, that, you know, you got somebody who was going to fight specifically on that issue. And that, to me, is something that's misread in the culture wars. It started with the school closings. Right. Everything else about schools is piled on top of that original dysfunction. So it was not white grievance politics that elected Glenn Youngkin, which I was told by the New York yeah. Times. It was okay. Uh, yeah. That, that wasn't what happened. <laughs> um, I want to ask your own sort of news consumption diet. Um, I, I'm always curious about people who are in the business in particular. You wake up in the morning, you want to find out whatever information you're looking for on the topics that you're interested in. What do you do? Where do you go? Um, so I read the wall street journal. I do, I do check in on Twitter for like a morning, like set, set the table, like what's going okay. on here. Um, so, but I won't, I won't spend a ton of time there, uh, while maybe like a little bit while I'm having my coffee, just to see what everybody's buzzing about. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts, uh, because I can do a lot of folding laundry, which is a big part of being a parent for me, uh, while I'm listening to podcasts. So Megan Kelly, ruthless, uh, part of, part of the old diet. Um, and then I don't, I actually, I don't watch a lot of cable news. Um, <laughs> but when I, when I do or did, um, I like Jake Tapper. I like, uh, Shannon Bream. Um, she's a buddy of mine and she's fantastic okay. at her job. Um, and who else? I mean, I, re I actually read hotair.com, which is like a, yeah. um, all is now gone. He was one of my faves and he's at the dispatch now, but I read it cause it's, to me, that's a nice overview of like things the right cares about today. Uh, right. and I mean, I can get the left stuff like by anywhere, anywhere else. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm actively seeking that out. I also like food news. So I, I, I look for stories about that. Did you see, by the way, that like Eric, um, the mayor of New York is like, maybe we'll just like start telling you guys what to eat. I no. like stories like that. He's going yeah, back he, to that now. Yeah. I mean, you know, cause 
eating is bad for the environment, so we're going to have to stop that, Steve. Okay, so this <laughs> so is like, not the, this is not the Bloomberg big gulp thing. This is that it's no, an environmental climate change. We're way past change. that. Yeah, we're way past that at this point. Okay, I thought we were going to eat the rats or something because he's got he's a big rat. He's a rat guy, also. Yeah. Uh, Mayor Adams. I don't know. I'm out of New York now. Um, all right. Last thing before we get to our lightning round here. Uh, you're a big college football person, much more than mm-hmm. I am. Um, but I've been toying around with this idea. Tell me if I'm if I'm missing something here. I okay. don't understand. Like it feels like we something is this NIL transfer situation that we're currently in is not sustainable. And and I and I don't know if it says something larger about our culture or what. But the ability, like it, it feels like. And I know they're not kids. There's just kids in college playing right. sports at a high level, but. As someone who knows a lot more about this than I do, what do you make of this current state of college football, college basketball, et cetera? Um, So I do think this is like sort of an undercovered story. Uh, The change in sports uh, due to the, that issue and also the endorsements uh, issue. And then also sports betting. I feel like gambling, that's been like such a huge game change, game changer, literally um, for so many reasons, but you don't see a lot of analysis on exactly what is happening in sort of the broad picture. Um, probably because ESPN is like really busy signaling some other things and can't put a reporter on that. Um, they got to like cover George Floyd again. But, um, but I think, I think it's to be seen like what becomes of this. I actually, I used to be a big, um, college basketball fan and I'm not so much anymore because everyone leaves so quickly that I have almost no relationship with any team. And uh, college football was something that, you know, until recently, you know, at least some of the guys were sticking around for four years if they weren't going to go pro, um, probably. And I can't blame them for wanting to go pro, by the way. I understand yeah. you have a you have a body that can only do this for so long. Trust me, I got four kids. I get it. Um, <laughs> but so I want them to be successful, but it does change the game and it makes it I feel like less emotionally attached, although I just won two national championships with the University of Georgia, so. I, I know. say I. I yes, yes, I helped yes. a lot. You're okay. involved. Yeah. Now the gambling <laughs> thing is interesting too, right? It's I I'm a I like gambling, I, but the part of what was so fun about gambling was it was very hard to kind of gamble. Like it, and now it's just so easy. Like it's a little bit concerning how easy it is to just yeah. be able to gamble on anything you want. Um, I know. See, this is what I feel like it's like so you it's ubiquitous and yeah. yet we're, no one's really talking about how that changed anything. And I feel like it probably changed a lot of things. More with Mary Catherine, including the Fourth Watch Lightning Round on Angela Rye, Guy Benson, and more, available for paid subscribers of Fourth Watch on Substack. Go to fourthwatch.media to try it. Thanks so much to Mary Catherine. Really enjoyed that conversation. Remember, Fourth Watch, not just a podcast, it's also a newsletter, also available at fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in this show as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. The song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music and download and rate and review and follow and like this podcast, the Fourth Watch podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then.